0: So tonight's talk will really move towards the positive side of the agenda which, are, which is really looking at the incarnation as defining the destiny of humanity and the cosmos. It's actually a massive uh, picture of the incarnation which is, uh, is a paradigm shift. Last, uh, in, in the last talk I talked about Descartes and how Descartes had really shrunk the conceptual landscape of what reality is for the modern world. Uh, Within that landscape, the incarnation doesn't fit so well. Tonight, we will go onto the positive side of the agenda and really um, try and create a uh, positive vision of the incarnation as redefining our destiny. This opening slide has uh, got an intriguing comment down the bottom, which, uh, the, the relevance of which may become clearer as we go on. Uh, Lee Hunt was a 19th century agnostic, close friend of uh, Keats and Shelley. This is a famous painting, it's actually the funeral of Shelley on a beach uh, with Lee Hunt uh, looking at it. The quote's intriguing. Um, from agnostics, like looking into the gospel, that if a divine religion might be found out where charity was really made the principle of it, instead of faith, the rest of the sentences would have a great many more adherence. And perhaps the uh, meaning of that will become clearer as we talk on tonight. I was interested, by the way, during the week when I was reading some of Peter Fitzsimmons, who is a cranky old agnos- uh, atheist-agnostic, um, Sydney Morning Herald journalist, who regularly likes uh, criticising Christianity, um, talking about the gay debate and the israel our controversy. But the heading is, "What would Jesus do?" And he finished with a mental model of the Jesus I grew up to recognize having a softer, more gentle presence. So it's really almost a picture of people wanting to believe, um, but, but, not actually, but being attracted to Jesus, but not the infrastructure we put around, uh, around the gospel. And that's how Lee Hunt felt. So let's uh, let's move in, um, and I wonder if this is don't think this is working. So last time I talked about there being two models uh, that could characterise the way we look at the uh, the gospel, the, the the redemption view, and the incarnational view. Um, this is not my model, uh, it's someone else's, who characterized the first half of the 19th century as dominated by a redemption view, very sin-based transactional type gospel, um, and in which the incarnation is a means to an end. It's a vehicle to achieve forgiveness. The incarnational view is much more creation centered and began to dominate the second part of the 19th century in England, where the goal is actually the glory of all creation and the emphasis was more on all things being made in God's image and the image of God, Uh, in which case the incarnation is no longer the means to an end, it's actually the end. And the cross and the transaction of the cross is is a means to the end that the incarnation sets out. So it's almost a reversal in terms. Uh, Tonight what I want to to talk about is the uh, conceptual landscape onto which that word incarnation falls because whenever we come across a a massive uh, idea it falls into a paradigm and that paradigm is the uh, other categories and worldviews in our mind and the very same story can fall on two very different landscapes and create two very different outcomes. One landscape which I will talk about tonight is Thomas Aquinas, who's very similar to Descartes. I mean, he's a few centuries before Descartes, but a similar worldview. And I'm gonna contrast him with Dun Scotus. Uh, And it's a very similar debate that occurred between those two as occurred between Descartes and Vico. And my argument will be that the concept of the incarnation falls on very barren soil in a a Thomas Aquinas systematic theology system. It actually is almost illogical. Uh, So it gets minimized into some kind of tactic of God to rescue us. But if you put it into the soil that Duns Scotus began to develop, it falls into very fertile soil. However, to get into the mindset of a Duns Scotus actually is a, a, I wouldn't say it's a lifelong effort, but it's it's a reshifting of paradigms because Scotus had a very, very broad philosophical conceptual grasp of the whole nature of reality. And you get into that landscape, the incarnation starts to make not just a lot more sense, but becomes quite explosive. I will move on beyond Duns Scotus to the real hero of tonight, who is Irenaeus. Um, in a way, Duns Scotus was just recovering Irenaeus. So let's let's move on now to the world of uh, of um, Thomas Aquinas. And what Thomas Aquinas did essentially was, he was a scholastic, meaning extremely intellectual. He's pretty dry to read, Um, it's hard work, and scholasticism is a bit like a lot of modern mathematical philosophy. It's very much a world of categories, if then reasonings, um, and extreme logic. And in a way what, he was doing, was, was noble, he was really at one level trying to uncover within nature, its systems, its logic, its coherence. To say that you know, nature's not a big, big unbund- uh, um, incomprehensible mystery, it's coherent, it's got its own categories. He was uh, very much um, rescuing or well not, he, he was in the era, that is the 13th century when Aristotle was being recovered And he was very much wanting to use Aristotelian logic and and bring that into Christianity. I haven't got that up on this slide, but he was very, also very much channeling St. Augustine. He was very explicitly a follower of Augustine. Uh, So at face value, that's a good thing. And um, there was an article on the the burning of Notre Dame in in, I think The Australian this week by, I think Henry Ergis explaining how the benefit of the Thomas Aquinas system into medieval architecture, you know, was this uh, sense of the systematicity, the proportionality, the beauty of creation, which was then evidenced in the cathedral. So um, there's a lot to be said for, for what he did. However, um, what it then led to was a view of God or grace. And his view of God was in a sense high, but extremely abstract. He actually said that God cannot be demonstrated, which at face value again is fair enough. He said God is, the word God means that other than which nothing greater can be signified. So it's, it's in a sense, a grand definition. In a sense, it's an empty definition. And that emptiness comes back to haunt him, I think in his system. Uh, what this led to, um, w- sorry, what this—I'm not good tonight on these slides. What this led to was what is was polarization, what is commonly called two-tiered Thomism. There's a grace level and there's a nature level, and this led to—and—and—and and, and really, he forced. That, def- that distinction, Now, if you actually get familiar with what's called dialectical reasoning, di- dialectical reasoning, which I, I actually think is very left-brained, will always force either ors. And if you're in the presence of a, of a strongly dogmatic dialectical reasoner, it's very off-putting because they'll, they'll, it's like being having a, a lawyer in front of you who says, no, answer the question, yes or no. And you, you're wanting to say, well, it's actually not yes and it's not no, but they won't let you do that. And that, that's what it feels like when you read Aquinas, it's an intimidating intellect, but very left-brained. But it will lead to either or. It, it just will. And um, uh, the... So I don't know why it keeps flicking back. It's not going to be a good night with the slides. It's a sign, it's a sign yeah. It's a sign. Um, what this led to was an epistemology. Now, please hang on to this this is going to become increasingly important, epistemology. That is knowledge. The epistemology of Aquinas was famously called the via negativa, which is I can only define God by what he is not. Because the minute I were to attribute an attribute to him, I would understand him. So he said we cannot inquire into the manner in which God exists. We can inquire only into the manner in which he does not exist. Since we cannot know of God what he is, but only what he is not. This can be shown by excluding what is incompatible with God. There's a kind of logic to this, but you can see it's leaving us with a great big vacuum in the middle around what, who God might be. So, you know, is for instance, for instance, um, he goes that there are eight of them. Is God um, multiple or is he... Uh, is God composite? No, God is not composite. Um, so you say He's not. He's not. He's not. It's a definition by negation. the The point about this in in this world, uh, knowledge, um, is somewhat of a second order question to the theology of grace versus nature. I mean. When we, when we, for instance, were to uh, suggest that Christians should have more knowledge, that can sound like I'm saved, you're suggesting like some kind of advanced studies. Do you know what I mean? Like knowledge is derivative to the experience of knowing God. I want to just make that point because um, by the time we get to Duns Scotus and Irenaeus, that will get totally flipped. Irenaeus defines life as knowing God. So knowledge moves from the edge to the center. But in, in Aquinas' system, it's a philosophical um, play theme. So the implications of this separation are actually quite severe. And um, I think deserve the appellation that Bentley Hart gave them of devastating, devastating implications. And you'll find they're no more devastating than anything that they are for the incarnation. But what, what he did is he has objectified nature and given it its own reality which must stand alone. So nature must have an inner logic, it must have its own cause and effect systems that explain it. And By removing God from it, he's taken all the mystery out of it. And in an attempt almost to bring it down, he's made it independent. And by making it independent, he has, on the one hand, he's reduced nature, reduced the cosmos by taking the mystery out of it. Because there's no trace of God in in nature. It's got its own mechanics. Uh, On the other hand, he's kind of made it greater than God. Because if it's got its own reason to be there, then God has to conform with that reason. So just hang on to this because this, this, this feeling is very prevalent in most Christians. What this became in Aquinas was if there's a law, God must obey it. If you think about it, the law is therefore greater than God. And I've got some mental model of this legal system that God must conform to. So these are all the implications as to where this thinking would go. Importantly, the Aquinas system uh, idolizes intellect. I mean, it is actually systematic theology on steroids. And I didn't really know, Rick, what systematic, I know what systematic theology is, having r- read some of the *Summa Theologica. I know it, I don't like it, so thank you, Rick. <laughs> it's not good. But it, look, at, if you were to read you know, this, you'll hear the word scholastics, you just gotta think of incredibly dry left-brained intellects that uh, would, would just exhaust you to try to follow their reasoning. Um, It really prioritizes the intellect as the way to know God. Now I would see vestiges of this in a lot of modern theology. I mean if you actually do what I've done and spend a fair amount of time reading the Summa Theologica you get a feel for it and you then smell it everywhere Um, and um, but further down the track, it all got worse because the separation has unintentionally left a vacuum up with God. God's a vacuum. And I think this polarization opens the way for a very sinister uh, partnership between uh, On the theological side, a false bifurcation between faith and reason, and almost a sense of the supernatural. So God's got to be, God, the realm of God is the quote unquote supernatural, a word that as far as I know is not in the Bible, but we all talk about it. It suggests there's nature and then the stuff above nature. But if you think about the polarization, what it will do once secularised is once I've objectified nature and admitted it's got its own reasoning, if I stop believing in, it gets easy to stop believing in God because nature's got its own logic. I don't need God anymore. So it also clears the ground for the death of God debate. I'm not suggesting that Aquinas planned this. It's just the implications of of it. Um, and the... The second area that where this Thomistic system, um, which was incredibly influential, of course, that's why I'm talking about it, was its assumptions for language and knowledge. This is, uh, this is vital. Um, and this is the piece where I left T.S. Eliot out. Uh, language is, of course, my background, so I'm talking here out of stuff I've studied and, and love. But the concept of words comes into this. And what we mean by the concept of words now is how close does a word get to what it's describing? like how close is the reality of a word and the concepts I've got in my mind to the reality it's describing now in the in the polarist binary reasoning of the black and white thinking of Aquinas, I only have two choices, things are equivocal or unequivocal. This reminds me of dealing with, sorry to say it for those who are lawyers, but this reminds me of dealing with extremely left brain lawyers. The word means this or it means that. So either language is equivocal, in which case it is got a one for one correlation for what it's it's, it's an adequate definition, or it's unequivocal. You see the either or? so hang on to this at the moment, because uh, it becomes, it, 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 this will become increasingly important. That's where the language for God, how do I describe God? How far away from God are the words I'm using to describe God? Now, this is where he introduced the idea of analogy. This is analogy in the hands of a scientist. Essentially, we only know God by analogy. Now, what does that mean? An analogy compares two unlike things and they have nothing in common. It is a merely descriptive device. So, if I say my love is like a rose, the rose and my love have nothing to do with each other. If I say God is like a rock, well, God is not like, God is not a rock. They have no qualities that they share. So when I use analogy, I am completely, I, um, I, I cannot make any claims that, uh, that it's equivocal. And where this will lead to is take the word goodness. We use the word goodness. We could say God is good, but don't for a moment think that your definition and concept of God correlates with God in any way at all because the qualities will be utterly different. So God becomes completely unknowable. Well, as you might see, the incarnation is really problematic in this system because the incarnation becomes some kind of visit from the supernatural realm and as an addition to the natural realm. It is actually a foreigner A stranger who has nothing in common with us visiting hostile territory if if you have a Thomas landscape so Jesus is really an analogy for God the incarnation is an analogy God and man are two separate categories and I can't I mean when when you put the incarnation into the unequivocal system Really, it is the strong suggestion that Jesus is an analogy. He actually says it. Can a creature be like God? When we affirm that a creature is like God, we are not in any way compelled to say that God is like a creature. We say that an effigy, a painting or an image, is like a man, but not that a man is like his effigy. So I can say, the painting's like the man, I can't say the man's like the painting. Similarly, we can say that a creature is like God, but not that God is like a creature. So do you see where he's going? The image of God now is merely an effigy. There's no qualities that I can share with God. It's a poetic analogy. That's the best you could say of Genesis one twenty-seven. Now, if you wanted to know whether I'm being hard on him or not, let me just give you a simple fact. I don't know if it's occurred to anyone else, but if you read the Summa Theologica, this is what the table of contents looks like. It's extremely logical of titles and subtitles, goes on for pages and pages and pages. Let me give you a simple fact, It might be of interest to you. There are, I counted them tonight, 222 headings. This is actually only an extract, there are more, but it's a big extract. 222 headings, what's a heading like? Well, I'll give you one. Um, The essence of original sin, article one, whether original sin is a habit. Article two, whether there are many original sins in one man. Article 3 where the original sin is desire. Article 4 where the original sin is all in all men equally. That's four headings. Guess what word is never mentioned in the 222 headings? Christ. Jesus. Messiah. There is not a single heading referring to Jesus Christ well I mean you get in the text you get a bit of it but this is a bit of a giveaway to me that this system is hardly a great system of the knowledge of Christ and my criticism of it as as being bad ground for understanding the incarnation is uh, is fair Um, I'm also suggesting, as I, as I did last week, that Aquinas' views, I think, have been very influential, even in the street, that we, you know, people accept a polarized view of grace and nature. He, um, I want to say, people, I mean, Christians, non-Christians, it's a it's a worldview we work in. And the reason that my talks are spliced with Ron is what we saw, ha- what Ron has been talking about in the world nature of nature, is that nature is full of mystery you don't need to be a Christian to to do that, think of that. Well, just as Descartes had an adversary called Vico, who was less well known than him, equally uh, Thomas Aquinas had not an adversary, but a man who one generation later, so the latter part of the 13th century, uh, challenged his thinking. And that was Dunn's Scotus who had in contrast an integrated view of nature and grace. Uh, My, I I confess I haven't read him directly, I haven't got around to that yet, so my information on SCOTUS is coming from listening to people about him, Uh, but I think it's a fair fair modeling. So what SCOTUS did was he made a fundamental challenge And the fundamental challenge is very similar to the challenge that Vico put on Descartes, which is, no, the world is not made up of intellect, it's made up of the will is primary to the intellect. And you've missed that entirely, Aquinas. Your system is an intellectual system, but all um, of God's activities begin with the will, Of course, the primacy of the will is something which we also see in human systems. My life is clarifying complexity. My life is designing things. My life is trying to improve things that are messy. The number one rule that we do to chart a reason through things is to find out the purpose of a system. Because it's generally not there. Let me give you concrete examples. So so if we're made in the image of God, I would expect to see this truth that SCOTUS put on the board everywhere in the activities of men. If the will is primary to the intent, then a good system has got a clarified will. So I was involved as a younger consultant, I was the consultant to a thing called the Tax Law Improvement Project. This was an attempt to rewrite Australia's tax law in plain English. Um, A fascinating exercise for a lot of reasons, Um, not least of which was the joy with which the legal fraternity greeted it. (laughs) Or not, not, since they made so much money out of obfuscation. Uh, There are many, many problems when you get into the the law. It's grown topsy-turvy, it was small, it's now vast. The main problem is you'd get into some provision, some arcane part of capital gains tax, and you'd have a group of people like this in the room who are the top people in the tax office, and I'd say, just why is this law even here? And people would be scratching their heads, I have no idea. What are we trying to achieve with this law? And eventually someone would say, oh, I remember somebody told me, oh old cottage not here anymore. But in 1947, there was this battle with the dairy farmers of South Queensland. And in order to close the loophole, they so now we've got this vast provision because 16 dairy farmers in 1947 in South Queensland needed a slap on the wrist. So now we've got every small business in Australia and BHP scratching their heads, working out how to comply with this provision that makes no sense because we don't know why it's there. So part of our reform, which we had to get a Special Act of Parliament through, was that every major body, and by major bodies, probably only every 10 pages, had to have a purpose clause. A paragraph up the front explaining its goals and objectives. And that might sound easy to do. Purpose is personal. And so, let me give you an example. Part of what was happening then was a thing called the simplified tax system. The moment in Australia, well back then, I don't quite know what's happened since because I haven't worked in this area for a long while. Uh, You've got this anomaly that if, if you own a coffee shop and run a small business, you are governed by the same company tax act that governs BHP. The BHP have an army of lawyers to comply with it and you're know your working nights trying to fill your BAS statement in. And there were some people in the tax office who thought this is slightly unfair. So why don't we have a quote unquote simplified tax system for small businesses that they can get into with simplified, that sounds good to me. So we were in the middle of bringing design thinking to that Um, Experience As we did, we tried to get a purpose clause. So I got the very senior people in Treasury with the very senior people in the tax office and said, I knew this was going to happen, by the way, because I knew the guys. You'd you'd think this is going to be dry. I'd say, we need to write a purpose clause. We've got the lawyers here ready. We're having a discussion. Could you explain what the purpose of of the simplified tax system is? Well, I may as well have thrown a hand grenade into the room because Treasury don't believe in simplified tax systems. Their worldview of macroeconomics is you don't interfere with the forces of the market. That's where they're coming from. And They told me that, you know, their philosophy is more specific. that's it. Whereas the tax office are more like they're the accountants who want to help the guys get through it. So there was this clash of worldviews. And it was so bad, I actually really enjoyed this meeting. Uh, it was so bad, I said, well, well, we will just leave a blank for the purpose clause. And that was the end of the meeting. Well, I knew that they would all have to come back. It's like saying, oh, no, 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 we'll work something out. But, And they did, but can you see purpose is personal. It brings what you believe about anything into view. And um, it, is, it is not just objectives. So SCOTUS was really... As human beings, we can identify with the wisdom of what Scotus said. He then said that will uh, frames and infuses the cosmos. Um, I shouldn't have makes it independent there. And it lifts creation by restoring mystery because he said nature cannot be above God and his will. He wanted to give a very powerful view of God. So he said even a moral law, like thou shalt not murder. It's up to God to decide if he wants murder or not. Everything comes out of his will. he, He is supreme and omnipotent, and his will will drive everything. So behind nature, behind a tree, behind volcanoes, behind rivers, you don't understand them if you don't understand why it was made, which is getting exactly to the same place that Vico got with Descartes. The only way to understand a system is via its its purposes. This is really important because it would say our worldview would be that science cannot explain a tree, it can do a lot, but if if I don't know why the tree is there. And equally in life we should be, we of all people, should be those who sponsor that type of dialogue with people. I think we go further because the word will is a little bit problematic in that we can read it as being um, goals and objectives. Whereas in the context of the Bible, it is actually a synonym for love. Because what Paul says in Ephesians is that God created the cosmos out of love. So the will was not some kind of, Um, arbitrary goal setting will the will was love and the will was grace which lies behind everything so a reading of Ephesians 1 makes that plain. What this left um, Scotus with was an integrated world where God infuses the cosmos his love infuses the cosmos and I can't understand any aspect of it without bringing that into account. Uh, and this picture I think is, um, I've had this picture up before of the mother with the, with the child. It, this means the cosmos is personal. We live in a world where everyone wants to objectify reality. They want to objectify organizations, they want to objectify data, they want to objectify nature. Whereas in fact, it's all a personal project. The whole cosmos is a personal project, the personal of God, and, and really our role as human beings in it is to continue that act of love into the cosmos. Equally, Scotus had an integrated view of knowledge and reality, and this, this, is, uh, this is where we get very close to the incarnation. He, had a, he introduced a new word, which he called univocity and it was a fundamental disagreement with Aquinas. What he said is that it's a more poetic view of language that says, we share qualities with God. Now, quality is a very important word because, and the reason we share qualities with God is because he made us in his image. So he's not foreign territory. So, God is like man and man is like God. Now, The key word here is like. I won't go into the Aquinas definition of what, but like is the key word. Um, like can mean an analogy where there are no, um, if I say something is like something else, it, 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 it has, it could have differences of degree, or it could have differences of quality. This is an important concept. If it's got differences of degree, like I could say white, could be whiter or less white. Big, smaller, less big. They share the quality of size and space, it's just they're stretched. But what Aquinas said is that God and a rock have nothing in common. There's no quality they share. And fundamentally, Scotus disagreed. That was univocity, which, as you can see down below the overlapping circles of God and human and God and good, welcome. The example down the bottom I've got, I've got two words for those listening, uh, good written in bold, all capitals, and good written in italics. They would share the quality, they share the quality of that word good, and I've stretched it with topography, but we're still got the same word. That's what uh, SCOTUS meant by university. By univocity, he meant God and human are overlapping circles. He doesn't pretend everything is the same, but something is. Within his system, of course, therefore, the incarnation is now not a visitation. It's a revelation of the true nature of things. And the incarnation is not an analogy. It's actually univocal. It's actually God revealing what we have in common with God. And not just with God, but what God has in common with the cosmos. So it is actually the central um, explanation of the cosmos. Because it is defining that overlapping circle between God and the cosmos with human beings as the bridge. So I think you can see now within this concept, the incarnation is, is ready to get really stretched the the um, part of the New Testament that probably stretches at most is easiest to see stretching it is John's Gospel, because to say that the Incarnation is in fact a revelation, not a visitation is to say it's a sign. and John's Gospel is a book of words and signs. Now. I'm not going to go through all of John's gospel, but I just want to show how the, the the SCOTUS system of the incarnate, the SCOTUS system shines the light on John's gospel. And this is actually a very important statement. It's a bit shocking, is that John is not apparently interested in sin, forgiveness and redemption because you simply don't find the words in John's gospel. I mean, you can look and look, but forgiveness of sins the Jewish concept of the sacrifice it is it is not there hardly there the theme is clear the theme is that the goal of humanity is to know God and that's why the book is written that you might know and understand and if the goal of humanity is knowing God and I'll come back to that in a moment then the problem we have is darkness not sin. Now, I'm I'm probably forcing that point, but the opening prologue of John's gospel does not talk about sin. It talks about darkness. Now, I'm, I'm I'm not discarding sin, but I'm saying darkness is more interesting. I actually think it's much more communicable to the modern world than sin. Sin sounds to me like a specialist problem. Like if you go and want to tell A non-Christian, you're a sinner. And uh, apart from the fact they don't like that as being offensive, it's like, well, you've used specialist religious language to tell me about a problem I don't think I've got. And furthermore, if you want to push it, I'll push back and talk to you about all the Christians who are sinners, which is why they rejoice in pedophilia in the Catholic Church. But if you talk about darkness, that's more interesting. Why are we here? Why is the cosmos here? Has life got meaning? We just had Anne and I a long conversation this week with a young couple on that, which was so much more illuminated by this view than if we'd have pushed sin on them. And if the problem is darkness, then the answer becomes the word because the word illuminates everything. And in John's gospel, that's the the progress of the book. Uh, The prologue announces the word and astonishingly says the word created the cosmos. I mean, the opening 12 verses of John's gospel are a sculptured explanation of the origin of a cosmos. Importantly, it describes Jesus as coming to his own, not to, not to a foreign territory, but to his own, not just his own people, but his own creation who didn't recognize him. What then follows in the book is the, the chapters two to 12, which C.H. Dodd, who's a great writer on John, calls the Book of Signs. Now here we have an important use of a word. The word that most commonly is used by us, I suppose, and most people is miracles. Rick could tell you more about this, but essentially miracles is not really the word that's used in the New Testament for what Jesus did. The word is much better translated as a sign. So it's not so much a supernatural, unspe- when Jesus walks on the water, it's not a supernatural strange visitation, it's a sign. Uh, when Jesus heals the blind, it's a sign. It's a sign of the na- of the relationship w- w- you know, we human beings are meant to have with the world around us. So the, the middle section of John is communicating the word. The word is revealing the real nature of our relationship with the cosmos. And then in the farewell discourses, the word bears fruit and that fruit that was contained in Jesus. Now that incarnation actually gets spread to the disciples um, and that spreading is then secured in the resurrection as the recreation of the cosmos. So John's gospel is really um, well understood as an unfolding of the incarnation all the way through. That is, uh, in, that is, that is actually beginning with um, the creation of the cosmos in the word. John uh, had a very big influence on Irenaeus, which is where I'll finish. The influence he had on Irenaeus was uh, quite personal. Uh, Irenaeus was the Bishop of Lyon, which was the center of France around about 170, 180 AD. He was the first really, I suppose, systematic theologian of the church in the sense of getting stuff all together. We have vast amounts of his writings left. Uh, He was enormously influential and he was mesmerized by the incarnation. Um, He's certainly one of the greatest minds that have ever turned, uh, you you know, expounded the, the gospel. As a young man, he was, uh, he met and was in, I want to say young man, early 20s. He met Polycarp in Milan and spent a lot of time with Polycarp whom he regarded as his early mentor. Polycarp was a wondrous saint. Uh, When he was 86, I think it was, they martyred him, tortured him to death. 86 year old but a man of impeccable character. But the important point about Polycarp was that when he was young, he was mentored by John. So there are famous excerpts where people are saying, you know, Polycarp's recollections of his talks with John who wrote John's gospel. So Irenaeus had this very strong personal connection, not just through John's gospel, but through conversations with, with John. And the same themes of a word are dominating in Irenaeus Um, this is a long quote from Irenaeus Uh, um, I I didn't have the time but I was going to hand out to everybody this epic chapter it's actually chapter 20 of book 4 of his book against the heresies Um, I'll read out parts of it because what I want you to see is that in the mind of Irenaeus the problem humanity has is not sin he's actually gone way back before sin to fundamental questions of how can creatures have life. And he has this breathtaking universal view that life only comes from God. And what he actually says here is that life comes from seeing God. So knowledge is not an uh, academic thing. It's, it's actually the source of life. For, that, for as those who see the light are within the light and partake of its brilliancy. Even so, those who see God are in God and receive his splendor. But his splendor also vivifies them, gives them life. Those, therefore, who see God do receive life. And for this reason, he, although beyond comprehension and boundless and invisible, so he's accepting much of what Aquinas said, although that's true, he rendered himself visible and comprehensible and within the capacity of those who believe that he might vivify those who receive and behold him through faith. For as his greatness is past finding out, so also his goodness is beyond expression by which having been seen, he bestows life upon those who see him. It is not possible to live apart from life and the means of life is found in fellowship with God, but fellowship with God is to know God and to enjoy his goodness. Men therefore shall see God that they may live, being made immortal by that sight and attaining even unto God. Within his system, uh, life is seeing God and participating with God who has life. So salvation is to know God and therefore the enemy of knowing God will be darkness about God. stuck here if knowing God is salvation then the word becomes the mechanism of salvation because what a word does is it gives me knowledge a word illuminates things and the effect of a word is to bring light if I explain something to you and you don't understand it the word gives light and that life in you in this system is becomes life. That's his system. His system of salvation is a system of communication. With, with the Logos being the communicator. Um, Therefore, the Son of the Father declares him from the beginning, inasmuch as he was with the Father from the beginning. And for this reason did the word become the dispenser of the paternal grace for the benefit of man, for whom he had made such great dispensations revealing God indeed to men, but presenting man to God and preserving at the same time the invisibility of the Father, lest any man should at any time become a despiser of God and that he should always possess something towards which he might advance. His whole concept is that the Logos, the word, explained the unexplainable to us, but still left with the mystery of God that we might continue to strive after it. So he's really unpacking what it means when John said, in the beginning was the Logos, the word. Um, Then he has this very, very famous sentence for the glory of God is a living man, or it's often translated, the glory of God is to be fully human. And the life of man consists in beholding God. For if the manifestation of God, which is made by means of the creation affords life to all living in the earth, much more does the that revelation of the Father which comes through the word give life to those who see God. So this is a system where the word unpacks the reality of the Father, creates light in the hearers, and the light creates life. And that system is became for Irenaeus, he, he's famous for picking up um, the concept of recapitulation. Everyone here familiar with that concept? Um, re- recapitulation. Yeah. So, recapitulation was a dominant concept of the gospel in the second century, and nobody developed it as much as Irenaeus. It's phenomenal. It's almost the high point of all I've been struggling to say. It comes from Ephesians 1 verse 10. Ephesians 1 verse 10, Paul says, with all wisdom and insight, God has made, the Father has made known to us the, the, the mystery of God, that in the fullness of the ages, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both things in heaven and things in the earth. It's one of these verses that is astonishing to read. He actually is saying that God will integrate the universe in the man, the glorified man, Christ Jesus. Gather together in one can be translated in many ways, a bit like the word logos. It means to summarize. It means to integrate. It means to synthesize. It means it can, in an argument, it is your summary. But it's a word that suggests that every part is contained in a collective whole. And that whole is Christ. He will in fact do that to the universe. And in talking about this, he we as human beings know what this is like because one of the capacities of our mind is to create holes out of parts, and it's totally mysterious. But that word is often translated to recapitulate. So that's where he got the word from to recapitulate all things in Christ. Um, So he, for him, the incarnation was the recapitulation of all things in Christ. So what, I I tried to draw a diagram and with this I will finish. What these guys do, unlike uh, Aquinas, is they all go back as John did to the beginning. Like Irenaeus did that, Scotus did a bit, but but Irenaeus was right there, Gregory of Nyssa did the same. And by the way, Aquinas does almost nothing with creation, almost nothing. And he has this epic investigation of how was the cosmos created. And he goes straight to the Trinity. It was, in fact, a collusion between love, the word and wisdom, Father, Son and Holy Spirit and that the word of God was there creating the world. So in the Genesis in the DNA of the world was the image of God in the word. What that means is creation has a golden thread through it without which you cannot understand it. And that golden thread is the image of God. A tree's got it, a rock's got it, a matter. You can't say we've got it. I mean, we have it at the top of the tree. But nowhere, you can't, nothing can be understood without God for these guys. Nothing can be. Because there's this golden thread that came. Existence is such a mystery to them. That we should exist is such a mystery. And only God has the quality of existence. I mean, Aquinas got that right, by the way. And so we don't go around saying, well, I do it more and more as I get older, which is I'm just kind of jaw dropping. Why we exist? <sighs> Where did that come from? That's a gift. By the way, it's the first prayer of the church, in Reve- the elders in Revelation 4. You know that, of course, the very first one. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive power and glory. To me. Why? Because you created all things and by your will, they exist and have their being. So, Scotus was completely right. Aquinas missed it. They only exist. We only here by his will. And if that will is loving, well, then there's love behind everything. However, in reality, does this, cobweb of darkness around that thread. Sin, mess, corruption, confusion, and the golden thread is uh, enshrouded with darkness. That's life. God, you know, that's not evident. So what God has been doing the whole time is incarnate through the word. And in this extended passage, he will find Really, he sees every, every word of God is, the, is, is read through John one, the burning bush, Moses on the hill, Elijah with the prophets hearing the still small voice. Gorgeous passage on Elijah. Where he says Moses talked about fire, so they had this communication of the holiness and the fire of God. And what did Elijah find? The still small voice which was foreshadowing the gentle peacefulness of he who said a bruised reader will not break. So God is communicating, communicating, communicating through the prophets. And finally, there's the massive communication. The climax of the word is in the 33 years of this man and in his death and resurrection. This is the big word. It's not like it's it's a strange word. It's been happening the whole time. But this is the big word, this is the word that sums everything up, and this word actually goes back and forward. The recapitulation, this by the way, I had to translate this out of Latin, I had to struggle, but this was a great, some great German theologian who in 1870 gave this definition. I read these theology books and they have all these wondrous quotes they don't translate. in Hebrew, Greek and Latin and i like oh, give you a chance. But anyway, at least I could get recover enough of year 12 Latin to get out of it. The iteration of re recapitulation is what? The iteration of Adam, the picking up the repetition of the original creation of Adam, both in similarity and in contrast. In Christ as the perfect blueprint so that all things might be subject to him. So the recapitulation goes right back and recapitulates the origins of the universe. And the guy who walked around the dusty fields of Galilee goes right back there, goes right forward to the end of all things. And the purpose of all of this recapitulation, the purpose of this incarnation, is that the incarnation would actually culminate in the incarnation of the universe. And this end of all things is what dominated their thinking that God would be all and in all. This phrase is dominant in the Patristic Fathers. This is the end of all things that God, this golden thread revealed, communicated, explained and achieved in Jesus would have its way and Um, infuse and and reshape uh, the the universe that's recapitulations. No wonder it was a big topic (laughs) and um, the gorgeous phrase I was going to read you uh, was um, from TS Eliot I might try and find to read out as a way of finishing because um, it's uh, I think he had this in mind. almost. Um, On words, apparently at one level he sort of agreed with Aquinas that it's hard to communicate things when he famously said that every attempt to write is a raid on the inarticulate with shabby equipment that's always deteriorating. This is the depressed poet writing. Um, This is uh, Ezra Pound who was depressed because he couldn't write having written some of the most magnificent poetry of the 20th century. This is Ernest Hemingway rewriting the last page of whom the bell tolls 38 times to try to get it right. You know, this is the perfectionist who the words don't quite do it, even though we think they're fantastic. It's shabby equipment. So that looks depressing. But then he said in Little Gidding, what we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is to make a beginning. So this is recapitulation, because Jesus joined the end and the beginning, in the middle. The end is where we start from. That is his version of Scotus, that the end being the goal, the final game is actually where we start from. Every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning. So here he has a sense that every every word captures the universe. it's it's a big word. And then the beautiful, beautiful, I thought this could be a great sort of logo for gospel conversations. We shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. So for me, I felt like as I was preparing this, we always know about the incarnation and we just arrived back where we started, which is what we always believe, but you kind of I hope in little ways we can all know the place for the first time.